All right. For those of you who don't know, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez. But before the preaching of God's word, um, I don't know if you guys noticed that when Hannah was reading, for those of you that know Hannah, her last name is different. Did you notice that? Part of the reason is because she got married two, two weeks ago, right? Three? And I say that because we need to pray for Victor, her husband. Just kidding. No, I'm not. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and I want to welcome you all again, those of you that are here, obviously, those of, those of you worshiping with us online. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, we are glad you're here. We are here to love you and serve you in any way we can. Today, we continue with our series based on the Gospel of Matthew, and today, we're going to talk about, I think, a topic that is really interesting and important, and is the topic of expectations. Um, and the question that I'm trying to answer today is, what is it that we should expect if we want to be followers of Jesus? That's an important question for you to ask. What is it that you should expect, I should expect, if we want to be followers of Jesus? Because expectations sets the tone for everything else. So Pastor Sergio, that happened to be here today, um, he says, he's, Sergio is one of the pastors for the Spanish-speaking congregation, and he says that one of the things that he's learned, and he's working uh, with couples, he's struggling couples in counseling, is that most of people, most of the struggles that married people have in marriage or with marriage, it's either because we have false, wrong, or unrealistic expectations about what marriage should be. Let me say that again. How many of you guys are married? If you struggle with marriage sometimes, many times, it's because most likely you have false, wrong, and realistic expectations. I think, look at that brother, agrees with me. <laughs> I think that is true, right? Actually, I remember one of the first times, uh, one of the first times, no, this time that I was counseling a young man you know, he's struggling in marriage within, uh, you know, within the first few months of marriage. And he says, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> and everything inside of me says, yes, you did. <laughs> I mean, nobody, if you have talked to anybody that has been married for more than two months, we know that marriage is beautiful. It's God's idea. It's God's design. There's a purpose behind it. But marriage sometimes is hard, right? That's another brother that's struggling. I mean, for goodness sakes, the Bible tells you that those who will marry will face many troubles in life. So the problem is not the design. The problem is not the reality. The problem is that we have these wrong expectations. And I would argue that that is true for any relationship in life. So, for example, if you're a student and you struggle with the school, it's because your, rea your, your expectation of what a school should be does not match the reality of the school. If you're struggling friendship, that means that you probably have false or wrong or unre unrealistic expectations of what that friendship should look like. If you struggle at work, most likely it's because you have this dream about what work should be, but that dream does not match the reality of what work is. And if you struggle with the church, it's because most likely you have this dream of what the church ought to be and you forget that we're still sinful people gathering every Sunday. It's about expectations. 
at any stage in life, in every context, and in any relationships, expectations matter. That is also true in our relationship with Jesus. And it's also true in our spiritual journey as we walk and follow Jesus. If you are like me, when I struggle with Jesus, it's because the tendency of my heart sometimes is to have false or wrong or unrealistic expectations of who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and what he wants from me. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, I'm not the only one that struggles with expectations. And this is part of the reason why we read Matthew 18, verses 18 to 34. I believe that that passage is all about expectations. And we're going to talk about three things today. Three things that if you are a follower of Jesus and wants to become a follower of Jesus, you should expect. You should expect the challenge, expect the wonder, and expect the unexpected. Expect the challenge, expect the wonder, and expect the unexpected. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say this. You need a reality check. Go ahead. Ready? Come back. Expect the challenge, point number one. As I talk about this, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 22. And you're going to see that there are two individuals that are not fully followers of Jesus just yet, that they are considering following Jesus, that they are attracted to Jesus, but they don't really understand what following Jesus requires, at least not just yet. And Jesus, because he's a God of truth and grace and never compromised truth for grace nor grace for truth. He's going to make sure that they understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I want you to ask yourself that question. Do I really understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus? So the first person is a teacher of the law. It's a religious person. And if you know anything about those people, is these are people that knew the Bible. They knew the Old Testament. They taught the Old Testament. So the problem was not about lack of knowledge in regards to what the Bible says in the Old Testament, there's got to be another problem. So this man approaches Jesus, and in verse 19, he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, some scholars believe that when he uses the name teacher or the title teacher, he's not being respectful. Some scholars agree or think that he's using either a sarcastic tone or his motives may be wrong. Part of the reason why they say that is because if you read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, every time a religious person says, uses the term teacher, is usually not with the right attitude nor motive. And I think that they might be right because of the way Jesus responds. Look at what he says in verse 20. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That seems like a weird way to answer after someone says that he wants to follow you. So let me paraphrase what Jesus is saying there, my interpretation of it. He says something similar to, you want to follow me? Great. But just know that following me has a cost. That if I don't have a place to lay my head, 
at times your life is going to be just as uncomfortable and just as challenging. That you will experience the same thing that I experienced. That if you choose to follow me, your life at times will be just as challenging and just as uncomfortable. Therefore, count the cost before you follow me. Now check this out. Because Jesus is God. And he can discern people's motives. I think that Jesus knew that this man wanted to follow Jesus because of a wrong motive. Maybe, just maybe, this man was looking for stability or comfort or privilege. Maybe, just maybe, this man saw that Jesus was, being, was popular and being accepted by many, many uh, being followed by many, and he thought that if he would become a follower of Jesus, he would get just the same things that Jesus would get. Maybe this man wanted more comfort, more popularity, more, to be more known. Basically, what he wants Jesus, he's seeing Jesus as a mean to an end. You know what's interesting about this man, though? That he already has stability, comfort, and privilege. He is a teacher of the law. In that context, teachers of the law were respected and admired by society just the same way it is today here. I hope you got that that was sarcasm, right? <laughs> so the question I got to ask is why is it that he's looking this why is it that he wants this from Jesus? Well, because that man struggles the way many of us struggle. We always want more. We always desire more. We always want to conquer more. Not only our hearts wants it, but society says that nothing is enough. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, count the cost and expect the challenge. I mean, Jesus is super clear. There's another man listening to this conversation. And he's a man that says, well, yeah, I could do that. I could count the cost. I will follow Jesus. So he starts a new conversation. And he basically says this. I want to follow you, but, verse 21, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, this is super interesting because the guy is not saying anything wrong. I mean, Jesus knows and this man knows that the Bible in the Old Testament requires that children take care and honor their parents. And one of the ways they did it was actually to, by taking care of their burial. Deuteronomy chapter 27. So this man is, is not saying anything wrong. But Jesus, once again, that can discern people's motives. He knows that there's something off. And this is what he says in verse 22. But Jesus told them, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And you got to ask the question, was Jesus just contradicting the Old Testament? Was Jesus going against what the Bible had already said? And if we know anything about Jesus, we know that Jesus never, ever, ever, ever contradicts what the Bible says. Therefore, Jesus is not calling him to not care for his father and to not honor his father. You know what Jesus is doing? Calling out his bluff. See, Jesus knows that in that context, 
if someone passed away, within hours, the same day, the burial would happen. So Jesus knows that when this man is saying, wait, wait, hold on a second, I got to take care of my father. He knows that what he's saying is that today is not the day for me to follow you. That I'm going to wait until my father dies so then I could bury him so then I could follow you. And Jesus makes it super clear what it means to follow Jesus. If you are going to follow me, Jesus says, is today. It's not tomorrow. It's not an hour from now. It's not a week from now. It's not next month. It's not when you're ready or things get better. It's today. Discipleship is about today. A genuine follower of Jesus does not put does not wait to follow and submit to Jesus tomorrow. It's today. We don't postpone anything. We don't delay anything. We don't ignore anything. It's today. And Jesus says to this man, if you want to follow me, count the cost and expect the challenge. Jesus says something, says something similar to this in Luke chapter 14 when he says that all of us are called to carry the cross and estimate the cost. What is interesting about that translation there is that the word carry literally can be translated as to remove, endure, or accept. Meaning that when Jesus calls you to follow him and he calls me to follow him, he wants me to remove anything that I need to remove. To endure whatever I need to endure and to accept what I need to accept. I don't get to negotiate with Jesus. You don't get to negotiate with Jesus. And the word estimate is an accounting word. He says, come on, get the pencil, get the paper, make the calculations and decide if you want to follow me or not. Can you see? That's one of the beautiful things about the Bible. It's super honest. He tells you this is what is required. It's not about your emotions. It's not about how you feel the presence of God or not. It's not about getting excited or getting depressed. It's about understanding, believing, and submitting. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Can you see how radically different is what Jesus says there to what modern Christianity says today? Modern Christianity says, well, you come to Jesus, he's going to fulfill all your dreams. If you come to Jesus, he's going to fix all your problems. If you come to Jesus, he's going to make your life better. You know what's interesting about that? I actually think that that is true. But not before the cross. You don't get glory without the cross. You don't get the blessings without the cross. You don't get the beauty of the effect of the gospel without the gospel. You know, when I think about all these people that I got to speak with and the things that I got to see in the Dominican Republic, they know what that looks like. See, that, that 33-year-old man I met was only there because someone understood this before. Count the cost. Carry your cross. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, or if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what it 
what requires of you. Don't be too quick to promise and don't be too slow to perform. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. That's D.A. Carson. Are you a follower of Jesus? Someone may ask, why would anyone willingly decide to follow Jesus if what he demands is so personal and so costly? Why would you do that and why would I do that? Well, this leads me to point number two. Expect the wonder. So Jesus finishes those conversations and he gets into a boat and his disciples, now these are the disciples, 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 start to follow him. And where they are in the middle of this lake, verse 24 says, suddenly a furious storm came up on the, came up on the lakes so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was leaping. Now the reason why I highlighted the phrase furious storm is because that storm was not just like a wimpy storm. You know, the word furious can be translated as a mega storm. And storm in the original can also be translated as an earthquake, chaos. So Jesus is saying that as he's in the boat with the 12 disciples, there's this crazy, amazing, massive storm to the point that the disciples, that listen up, church, are many of them are hardcore, tough fishermen that have been in that place before. Cry out to Jesus this, verse 25. Lord, save us. We are going to drown. This is not like, excuse me. Jesus, I'm sorry to bother you. Would you save us? No, no, no. No, no, no. The size of the storm is so crazy, which is my word, that these guys, these hardcore, tough fishermen, are crying out like little kids and saying, Save us! We are drowning. Now, the crazy thing is that Jesus is sleeping. <laughs> now, listen, there's only two possible explanations here. I hope you know. Why is it that Jesus is sleeping? I mean, come on. One possible explanation could be this. Jesus was exhausted. He's been doing so much ministry, he does not feel anything. You know there's people like that, right? Like, I just saw some of those in this trip. There are teenagers that could be in a van full of loud teenagers with loud music and the van moving up and down and a kid being like. <laughs> that happens. It's either that or Jesus is about to teach the disciples something about faith. And something tells me that is the second option. So, here you have Jesus in the middle of this storm, in the middle of this mega storm, in this mega earthquake in water. And I want you to notice 
what Jesus does when he wakes up. What Jesus does first when he gets up. He replied, looks at the disciples and says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? What? Notice that he doesn't shut the storm. He addresses the people that are afraid, and there's so many questions that you got to ask. Well, is Jesus insensitive? Doesn't Jesus consider that this fear is a real fear? Can he consider the context? What's going on here? Uh, it gets better, you know? Because Jesus gets up, wakes up, and when he calls them and when he says, why are you afraid? He's using a word that literally means, why are you such a coward? Oh. Can you imagine you're there? And there's a real thing why you're afraid. And Jesus says, stop being a coward. And then he says, you're a coward and you're afraid because you lack faith. Why would Jesus do that first? Well, Spurgeon has a great reasoning. He says, it was easier for Jesus to calm the storm than to deal with these people's hearts. It tells you something about your heart. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about what it means when the Bible talks about little faith. Because I believe that that's a term that has been abused in the church and has not been explained the way the Bible explains it, in my opinion. See, I want to argue that when Jesus is rebuking these disciples because of their fear, he is not rebuking them because there was something wrong with that fear. Jesus is not saying that there's something wrong with that fear. I want to argue that fear is a good thing. It's given by God. It's one of the things that tells you that if something is dangerous, you should be afraid. It tells you that fear tells you that something is wrong. So if your house is on fire and you say, I don't fear anything, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is something similar to this. If a normal fear gets a hold of your heart in such a way that it controls you and make you do illogical things, irrational things, contrary to recent things, if that fear makes you do abnormal things, is because you have forgotten who Jesus is and where Jesus is. Who Jesus is and where Jesus is. You know what the problem was with these guys? They forgot that the God of the universe was inside the boat. Sleeping, but there. So what does little faith mean? See, little faith, the way people explain it is, is because you lack faith. You don't have the quality of faith that you need. You don't, you don't have the quantity of faith you need. That is not what the Bible says, at least not the way I understand it. 
What the Bible calls us is not to have a lot of faith, but to trust him. It's to trust God. It's to trust his timing. It's to trust his, his power. It's to trust his character. It's to trust him. It's not about intensity. It's not about the quality or the quantity of your faith. And just to help them see who Jesus is and where Jesus is, Jesus gets up, look at the storm in verse um, 26, and then he got, up and, he got up and rebuked. That means commanded, and he spoke to the winds and the waves, and he was completely calm. Now check this out. What comes to mind when you think about Jesus doing that? I bet you that many of you think that Jesus goes, stop in the name of Jesus. <laughs> but that's not what the text says. It's more something like this. Come down. And nature submits to him. The reason why we are afraid is not because there's something wrong with our fears. The reason why we are afraid is not because we lack quality or quantity of faith. The reason why we struggle with fear and fear controls us and makes us do unnatural, illogical things is because we forget that the God that is with us is the one that speaks to the storm and the storm submits. It's who Jesus is and where Jesus is. And this is why I use the word wonder, because in verse 27, these men look at this and say that he was amazed. They were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waters obey him. Can you see what Jesus is doing? He's teaching them that faith is not about us. It's not what you exercise. It's about him. He is the object of our faith. Now, I'm going to make this super clear so everyone understands it. This is something that I learned years ago, um, and a scholar used this as an illustration. I used to hear years ago, but because you remember like 10% of what I teach, I'm sure that you don't remember any of this. <laughs> you guys remember when the Israelites were in, in Egypt, and the Lord is sending all these plagues to deliver them? You guys remember the last one? The last plague is was when he was going to send an angel of destruction and they were supposed to paint the doorposts of their houses with blood. And if the angel will see the blood, we'll skip over them, we'll pass over them and then kill everybody else. Let's pretend for a second that there are two couples that they're part of the Israelites. And they were supposed, and they did, I put the paint and I believe all of this stuff. One couple, their name is Peter and Mary. The other couple... It's Pedro and Maria. Got it? That's the multi-ethnic group right there. <laughs> Peter and Mary trust the Lord with all their hearts. And they are not struggling about this. Actually, Peter goes to Mary and says, I can't wait to see what the Lord is going to do. How powerful this is going to be. He's going to deliver us from all of this. Finally, freedom. I can't wait to see him. Mary goes, amen to that, brother. On the other hand, we have Pedro and Maria that also trust the Lord. But Pedro is struggling. And he says, I don't know, baby. I mean, I know that the Lord could do this. 
And there's plenty of evidences that he can deliver us. But I'm struggling. I mean, I, I believe, but I need to believe more. And Maria says, I, I get you, baby. I, I understand. I'm struggling too. I know that the Lord could do something, but this is hard. Question for you is this. That night, who got delivered? Peter, Peter and Mary or Pedro and Maria? Both, right? You know why? Because he didn't have to do anything about their quality or quantity of faith. It had to do with the God that delivers his people. It had to do with the one that will make promises and always fulfill his promises. It had to do with the one that speaks and the, and the mountains melt. Yes. That it has to do with this one that loves his people and never walks away. That's what faith look like. So, looks like. So when we struggle with faith, it's not that we need more faith or amazing faith or I don't know, whatever faith. It's about a simple faith that really trusts him is to have faith in him. So let me ask the question again. Why would anyone willingly decide to follow Jesus if what he demands is so personal and so costly? Because even though Jesus demands something so personal and so costly from his followers, there is nothing better, more satisfying, and more secure than to believe in the one that speaks and nature submits to him. There is nothing, more be not, nothing better, more satisfying, or more secure than trusting and obeying the ones that always is in control of everything, even a mega storm. There is nothing better and more satisfying and more secure than to rest in the one that exchanges the mega storm for a mega calm. See, the word that is used in the text for completely is the same word, calm, mega calm. So this is why people follow Jesus. He's worth following. And the story continues, and he's going to give us now another illustration, and this one is going to go faster. Because now Jesus moves into a community of Gentiles, and in verse um, 28, he says that when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men that were extremely violent in such a way that no one could pass that way. They were violent there. Not only means that they were aggressive, but that they were dangerous. Now, this is not a, a sermon about demon-possessed. That's not the point of the text, so I'm not going to spend time there. But I want you to see what we can learn from, this, from these demons. Check this out because they have, they're about to give us a theological class. Verse 21 says that these demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And in verse 29 also says that they knew that Jesus had power over them. And they also knew that if Jesus speaks, they submit. These are demons. And therefore, in verse 31, the demons begged Jesus. And they said, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And I could just picture the pigs. It's like, what did we do? <laughs> this is what I want you to see, though. That when that happened, in verse 33, the people that were tending the pigs run off, 
And they went into the town and reported all this that the Lord has done. You know, the, the casting of demons and healing these people. And then if you read the text, the, the, the pigs went into, and, and they killed themselves. And when people heard that, this is what verse 34 says. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave that region. Why would these people do that? The answer is super simple. They love those pigs much more than what they love people. This is a small community, therefore everyone knows who these guys are. They know how much they have suffered. And yet... When Jesus performs this miracle, what matters to them the most is not the healing of these oppressed people, but that they lost money with those pigs. That happens when you put money before people, things before people, work before people, goods before people. So the question is, why would anyone be willing to decide, uh, willingly decide to follow Jesus if he demands something so personal or so costly? Listen up, church. Because even though Jesus demands something so personal and so costly from his followers, there's nothing better, more satisfying, and more secure than to believe in the one that is willing to lose it all for the sake of your soul. For the one that is willing to sacrifice it all for the sake of your soul. And this leads me to point number three. You know what makes me want to follow Jesus even more? I've been a Christian for 20-something years already. And I have to say, there has been times when I had to sacrifice a lot and other times in which I really don't have to sacrifice much. But let's say that I have one of those lives, like the missionaries I just mentioned, in which they had to sacrifice a lot. Do you know why people still follow Jesus? Because if you compare what he demands of us to what he did for us, our cost is nothing compared to what he went through. That he was willing to sacrifice so and so much for you. That if we compare who had to sacrifice more, our sacrificial, our sacrifice for him is this big. You know what's interesting about this passage? It's full of images that take us to the cross. So we understand this. In verse 20, for example, it says he's called the son of man. And in verse 29, he's called the son of God. Meaning that this is the way we explain that Jesus was completely God and completely man. And then it tells you that this God that is completely God became completely man. So he could come and take upon himself the furious mega storm of the wrath of God. The chaos of God. The part of the reason why he goes to the cross is so he could take the storm you deserved. So he could give you the peace that you so much need. That the same God, this is the thing, no one expected that the same God that commands nature and nature submits to him would be the same God that would become a tiny human being to save the afflicted. 
See, that's why we follow him. See, in verse 20, for example, it says that Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. Did you know that that word laid appears in John chapter 19, verse 30? And it says that Jesus at the cross bowed, which is the same word, bowed his head, his head and gave up his spirit. See, no one expected that the God that commands nature and nature submits to him will be the same God that willingly surrendered his life so we wouldn't drown in our sin. That's why he bowed his head in verses 28 and 29. He says that he delivered these two men from oppression. That's what the Bible tells us in Colossians that Jesus went to the cross to deliver us from the slavery of the devil. That's the cost. See, no one expected that the same God that speaks to nature and nature submits to him will experience shame, rejection, injustice in order to deliver you from your oppression. Whatever he asks of me is nothing compared to what he did for me. Whatever he's asking of you is nothing compared to what he already did for you. So let me ask the question again. Why would anyone willingly decide to follow Jesus if what he demands is so personal and so costly? Simple. No one has loved you the way he has loved you. And no one has sacrificed as much as he has sacrificed. And no one can sacrifice as much as he can sacrifice. It doesn't make any sense to me that God would become a human being to save the very people that didn't want him. That's how costly his love is. Let's pray. Lord, we confess today that we too are people of little faith. We look at the storm, we feel the fear, and we forget who you are and where you are. We forget that we don't need a ton of faith. We just need to believe in you. Would you please make of us people of faith? To such a degree, Lord, that we are willing to sacrifice what we need to sacrifice. To such a degree that we surrender what we need to surrender. To such a degree that it's a joy surrendering, surrendering who we are and what we have for the sake of your glory and the well-being of others. Lord, we are grateful that no one has loved us the way you did. And we are grateful that no one can sacrifice the way you did. 
No sinner could die for another sinner. Only God, pure, holy, and just could die in the place of us sinners. Lord, please help us see and understand what happened at the cross in such a way that we are willing to live for you and surrender everything for you. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus and the church says,